Greetings, listeners. We're back once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits like the Dreamlands, or things of a weird nature, or things that are Lovecraftian leaning, weird fiction, science fiction, horror, learn of terrible meetings in lonely places, of cyclopean ruins, and vast staircases that lead down to abysses of knighted secrets, of complex angles that lead through invisible walls to other regions of space and time, and of hideous explorations in remote and forbidden places on other worlds and in different time-space continua. From the creation of our galaxy to the death of the sun, this is an exploration of the Cthulhu mythos from the perspective of humans' concept of history. We are the people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos. You can find us at pgttcm.com, pgttcm.podbean.com, and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos starts now. The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Season 8. Greetings and welcome to The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. And between episodes, let's see... 107 and 134, we will be talking about the beetle. The beetle, a mystery, is a 1897 horror novel by British writer Richard Marsh. To tell you about it is to spoil it. So check it out, and that'll be going on from now until sometime in December. This episode is brought to you by FoundOutOnClothing.com and BunnySlippers.com. Subscribe to PGTTCM with D.B. Spitzer and Seraphie. Wherever you subscribe to podcasts, we prefer Podbean and Apple Podcasts. Check out the new website over at PGTTCM.com and check out the merch table over at PGTTCM.Threadless.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PGTTCM. Or check us out on YouTube at People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Edited by Daniel Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod, featuring The Hive, Ghost Story, Ghost Processional, Oppressive Gloom, and our theme song, The Chamber. Chapter 25. The Man in the Street. This morning, I had an adventure. I was in the breakfast room. Papa, as usual, was late for breakfast, and I was wondering whether I should begin without him, when, chancing to look round, Something caught my eye in the street. I went to the window to see what it was. A small crowd of people was in the middle of the road, and they were all staring at something which apparently was lying on the ground. What it was I could not see. The butler happened to be in the room. I spoke to him. Peter, what is the matter in the street? Go and see. He went and saw, and presently he returned. Peter is an excellent servant, but the fashion of his speech, even when conveying the most trivial information, 
is slightly sesquipedalian. He would have made a capital cabinet minister at question time. He wraps up the smallest petitions of meaning in the largest possible words. An unfortunate individual appears to have been the victim of a catastrophe. I am informed that he is dead. The constable asserts that he is drunk. Drunk? Dead? Do you mean that he is dead drunk at this hour? He is either one or the other. I did not behold the individual myself. I derived my information from a bystander. That was not sufficiently explicit for me. I gave way to a seemingly quite causeless impulse of curiosity. I went out into the street just as I was to see for myself. It was perhaps not the most sensible thing I could have done, and Papa would have been shocked. But I am always shocking Papa. It had been raining in the night. And the shoes which I had on were not so well suited as they might have been for an encounter with the mud. I made my way to the point of interest. What's the matter? I asked. A workman with a bag of tools over his shoulder answered me. There's something wrong with someone. Policeman says he's drunk, but he looks to me as if he was something worse. Will you let me pass, please? When they saw I was a woman, they permitted me to reach the centre of the crowd. A man was lying on his back in the grease and dirt of the road. He was so plastered with mud that it was difficult at first to be sure that he really was a man. His head and feet were bare. His body was partially covered by a long ragged cloak. It was obvious that that one wretched. Dirt-stained, sopping wet rag was all the clothing he had on. A huge constable was holding his shoulders in his hands and was regarding him as if he could not make him out at all. He seemed uncertain as to whether it was or was not a case of shamming. He spoke to him as if he had been some refractory child. Come, my lad, this won't do. Wake up. What's the matter? But he neither woke up nor explained what was the matter. I took hold of his hand; it was icy cold. Apparently, the wrist was pulseless. Clearly, this was no ordinary case of drunkenness. There is something seriously wrong, officer. Medical assistance ought to be had at once. Do you think he's in a fit, miss? That a doctor should be able to tell you better than I can. There seems to be no pulse. I should not be surprised to find that he was. The word "dead" was actually on my lips when the stranger saved me from making a glaring exposure of my ignorance by snatching his wrist away from me and sitting up in the mud. He held out his hands in front of him, opened his eyes, and exclaimed. In a loud but painfully raucous tone of voice, as if he was suffering from a very bad cold, Paul Lessingham. I was so surprised that I all but sat down in the mud. To hear Paul, my Paul, apostrophised by an individual of his appearance, 
in that fashion was something which I had not expected. Directly the words were uttered, he closed his eyes again, sank backward, and seemingly relapsed into unconsciousness, the constable gripping him by the shoulder just in time to prevent him banging the back of his head against the road. The officer shook him, scarcely gently. Now, my lad, it's plain that you're not dead. What's the meaning of this? Move yourself. Looking round, I found that Peter was close behind. Apparently, he had been struck by the singularity of his mistress' behaviour, and had followed to see that it did not meet with the reward which it deserved. I spoke to him. Peter, let someone go at once for Dr. Coates. Dr. Coates lives just round the corner, and since it was evident that the man's lapse into consciousness had made the policeman sceptical as to his case being so serious as it seemed, I thought it might be advisable that a competent opinion should be obtained without delay. Peter was starting when again the stranger returned to consciousness, that is, if it really was consciousness, as to which I was more than a little in doubt. He repeated his previous pantomime, sat up in the mud, stretched out his arms, opened his eyes unnaturally wide, and yet they appeared unseeing. A sort of convulsion went all over him, and he shrieked. It really amounted to shrieking, as a man might shriek who was in mortal terror. Be warned, Paul Lessingham! Be warned! For my part, that settled it. There was a mystery here which needed to be unravelled. Twice had he called upon Paul's name, and in the strangest fashion. It was for me to learn the why and the wherefore, to ascertain what connection there was between this lifeless creature and Paul Lessingham. Providence might have cast him there before my door. I might be entertaining an angel unawares. My mind was made up on the instant. Peter, hasten for Dr. Coates. Peter passed the word, and immediately a footman started running as fast as his legs would carry him. Officer, I will have this man taken into my father's house. Will some of you men help to carry him? There were volunteers enough and to spare. I spoke to Peter in the hall. Is Papa down yet? Mr. Linden has sent down to say that you will please not wait for him for breakfast. He has issued instructions to have his breakfast conveyed to him upstairs. That's all right. I nodded towards the poor wretch who was being carried through the hall. You will say nothing to him about this unless he particularly asks. You understand? Peter bowed. He is discretion itself. He knows I have my vagaries, and it is not his fault if the savour of them travels to Papa. The doctor was in the house almost as soon as the stranger. Once washing, he remarked directly he saw him. And that certainly was true. I never saw a man who stood more obviously in need of the good offices of soap and water. 
Then he went through the usual medical formula, I watching all the while. So far as I could see, the man showed not the slightest sign of life. Is he dead? He will be soon, if he doesn't have something to eat. The fellow's starving. The doctor asked the policeman what he knew of him. That sagacious officer's reply was vague. A boy had run up to him, crying that a man was lying dead in the street. He had straightway followed the boy and discovered the stranger. That was all he knew. What is the matter with the man? I inquired of the doctor when the constable had gone. Don't know. It may be catalepsy and it mayn't. When I do know, you may ask again. Dr. Coates' manner was a trifle brusque, particularly, I believe, to me. I remember that once he threatened to box my ears. When I was a small child, I used to think nothing of boxing his. Realising that no satisfaction was to be got out of a speechless man, particularly as regards his mysterious references to Paul, I went upstairs. I found that Papa was under the impression that he was suffering from a severe attack of gout. But as he was eating a capital breakfast and apparently enjoying it, while I was still fasting, I ventured to hope that the matter was not so serious as he feared. I mentioned nothing to him about the person whom I had found in the street, lest it should aggravate his gout. When he is like that, the slightest thing does. End of chapter 25 Recording by Ruth Golding Chapter 26 A Father's No Paul has stormed the House of Commons with one of the greatest speeches which even he has delivered, and I have quarrelled with Papa, and also I have very nearly quarrelled with Sidney. Sidney's little affair is nothing. He actually still persists in thinking himself in love with me, as if since last night, when he, what he calls, proposed to me, he has not time to fall out of love and in again half a dozen times. And on the strength of it, he seems to consider himself entitled to make himself as disagreeable as he can. That I should not mind, for Sidney disagreeable is about as nice as Sidney any other way. But when it comes to his shooting poison shafts at Paul, I object. If he imagines that anything he can say or hint will lessen my estimation of Paul Lessingham by one hair's breadth, he has less wisdom even than I gave him credit for. By the way, Percy Woodville asked me to be his wife tonight which also is nothing. He has been trying to do it for the last three years, though under the circumstances it is a little trying. But he would not spit venom merely because I preferred another man, and he, I believe, does care for me. Papa's affair is serious. It is the first clashing of the foils, and this time I imagine the buttons are really off. This morning he said a few words, not so much to as at me. He informed me that Paul was expected to speak tonight, as if I did not know it, 
and availed himself of the opening to load him with the abuse which, in his case, he thinks is not unbecoming to a gentleman. I don't know, or rather I do know, what he would think if he heard another man use, in the presence of a woman, the kind of language which he habitually employs. However, I said nothing. I had a motive for allowing the chaff to fly before the wind. But tonight, issue was joined. I, of course, went to hear Paul speak, as I have done over and over again before. Afterwards, Paul came and fetched me from the cage. He had to leave me for a moment while he gave somebody a message, and in the lobby there was Sidney, all sneers. I could have pinched him. Just as I was coming to the conclusion that I should have to stick a pin into his arm, Paul returned, and positively Sidney was rude to him. I was ashamed if Mr. Atherton was not. As if it was not enough that he should be insulted by a mere popinjay at the very moment when he had been adding another stone to the fabric of his country's glory, Papa came up. He actually wanted to take me away from Paul. I should have liked to see him do it. Of course, I went down with Paul to the carriage, leaving Papa to follow if he chose. He did not choose, but nonetheless he managed to be home within three minutes after I had myself returned. Then the battle began. It is impossible for me to give an idea of Papa in a rage. There may be men who look well when they lose their temper, but, if there are, Papa is certainly not one. He is always talking about the magnificence and the high breeding of the Lindens, but anything less high-bred than the head of the Lindens in his moments of wrath, it would be hard to conceive. His language I will not attempt to portray, but his observations consisted mainly of abuse of Paul, glorification of the Lindens, and orders to me. I forbid you, I forbid you. When Papa wishes to be impressive, he repeats his own words three or four times over. I don't know if he imagines that they're improved by repetition. If he does, he is wrong. I forbid you ever again to speak to that, that, that. Here followed language. I was silent. My cue was to keep cool. I believe that, with the exception, perhaps, of being a little white and exceedingly sorry that Papa should so forget himself, I was about the same as I generally am. Do you hear me? Do you hear what I say? Do you hear me, miss? Yes, Papa, I hear you. Then, 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 promise me, promise that you will do as I tell you. Mark my words, my girl, you shall promise before you leave this room. My dear Papa, do you intend me to spend the remainder of my life in the drawing room? Don't you be impertinent. Don't, don't, don't you speak to me like that. I, 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 I won't have it. I tell you what it is, Papa. If you don't take care, you'll have another attack of gout. Damn gout! That was the most sensible thing he said. If such a tormentor as gout can be consigned to the nether regions by the mere utterance of a word, by all means let the word be uttered. 
off he went again. The man's a ruffianly, rascally, and so on. There's not such a villainous vagabond, and all the rest of it. And I order you, I'm a Linden, and I order you. I'm your father, and I order you. I order you never to speak to such a, such a... Various vain repetitions. Again, and, 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 I order you never to look at him. Listen to me, Papa. I will promise you never to speak to Paul Lessingham again, if you will promise me never to speak to Lord Cantilever again, or to recognise him if you meet him in the street. You should have seen how Papa glared. Lord Cantilever is the head of his party. It's august and, I presume, reverenced the leader. He is Papa's particular fetish. I'm not sure that he does regard him as being any lower than the angels, but if he does, it is certainly something in decimals. My suggestion seemed as outrageous to him as his suggestion seemed to me, but it is Papa's misfortune that he can only see one side of a question, and that's his own. You, you dare to compare Lord Cantilever to, to, to that, that, that? I am not comparing them. I am not aware of there being anything in particular against Lord Cantilever. That is against his character. But of course I should not dream of comparing a man of his calibre with one of real ability, like Paul Lessingham. It would be to treat his lordship with too much severity. I could not help it, but that did it. The rest of Papa's conversation was a jumble of explosions. It was all so sad. Papa poured all the vials of his wrath upon Paul, to his own sore disfigurement. He threatened me with all the pains and penalties of the Inquisition, if I did not immediately promise to hold no further communication with Mr. Lessingham. Of course I did nothing of the kind. He cursed me in default by bell, book and candle, and by ever so many other things beside. He called me the most dreadful names, me, his only child. He warned me that I should find myself in prison before I had done. I am not sure that he did not hint darkly at the gallows. Finally, he drove me from the room in a whirlwind of anathemas. End of chapter 26. Recording by Ruth Golding.